Now you turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 19. 2 Samuel 19 is where we'll be today. Our passage begins in verse 9. And we'll go till the end of the chapter. If you're just joining us today, or if you've missed the last few Sundays, I can catch you up pretty quickly on what's been happening. Absalom, David's son, has rebelled against his father, but that rebellion has been crushed, which means that the road is clear now for King David to return to his throne. That's 2 Samuel 19. It's the return of the king. But as you're about to hear, David's return, like almost every other event in 2 Samuel, will be anything but smooth. Anything but smooth. So, let's listen now to God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 9 of 2 Samuel 19. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man. So they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. Now Shimei the son of Gera the Benjaminite from Bahurim hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin, And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and his twenty servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king, and they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan, and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong, on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai the son of Zariah answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am the king this day over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God 
Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you have set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Now Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, eighty years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day eighty years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be, at, be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please, let your servant return, that I may die in my own city, near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant Chimham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over. And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. All the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel, brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense or has he given us a gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the, men, the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Let's pray. Father, would you help us now to have ears of faith that we might listen to your word and to respond, Father, by believing it, obeying it, and applying it in ways that bring glory to your Son and do good to your church. Father, please help me to speak things that are true and faithful and accurate. Please give your people discernment, God. Help us to hold fast to the truth and to grow in it, God, and be equipped for perseverance. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On April 9th, 1865, in the small Virginia village of Appomattox Courthouse, General Robert E. Lee surrendered his Confederate army to the Union commander Ulysses S. Grant, April 9th, 1865. It was a quiet end to what had been a tumultuous conflict. For four long years, the United States had been torn apart in civil war, but with Lee's signature on that April afternoon, the Civil War officially came to an end. 
And yet the official end of the Civil War also marked the beginning of what could be called the most difficult era in American history, the era of Reconstruction. That decades-long work to rebuild a fractured nation. Winning a battle is one thing, friends. It takes strength and endurance and strategy and perseverance. Winning a battle is one thing. But rebuilding a nation? Where do you even start? Infrastructure, local economies, schools, hospitals, homes. Everything has to be rebuilt. Not to mention public trust and national unity. The Civil War may have ended in Appomattox, but in many ways the hard work was only beginning. As we come to 2 Samuel 19, we find a similar dynamic at work in David's kingdom. Israel's civil war may have ended in the forest of Ephraim, but the hard work is only beginning for David. Absalom's rebellion revealed serious divisions within the kingdom, and repairing those divisions will prove as difficult for David as defeating Absalom's army. In fact, This theme of division within the kingdom of Israel is the most striking feature of this passage. It frames the author's presentation. You probably noticed it when we read, but look again with me at the text. The passage begins in verses 9-15 to with the tribes of Israel bickering with one another. And then the passage ends in verses 40-43 to with the tribes again sniping at one another. You see like a pair of bookends at the beginning and at the end National division, disunity, strife frames the passage. All of that to say, David still has some difficult terrain ahead of him. The civil war in Israel is over, but the hard work is only only beginning. In the midst of this division, King David embarks again for Jerusalem. You can see it there in your Bibles. Verses 16-39 to tell this part of the story. And in his journey home... David meets three individuals whom we have met before. Shimei, Mephibosheth, and Barzillai. Each man speaks with the king for a protracted period of time. And through those speeches, we get these different perspectives on the work that David has ahead of him. How will David deal with his enemies? And how will David treat his friends? Those are the questions that confront the king on the road back to Jerusalem. Again, the point that we need to see is that David has work left to do. The fighting is over, but the hard work is only beginning. So that's the passage in summary form. It begins and it ends with the problem of division. And in the middle, there is this series of personal encounters that detail the work David has to do. You can say then that the passage gives us three scenes. Number one, a kingdom dilemma in verses 9 to 15. Number two, kingdom characters in verses 16 to 39. And number three, a kingdom fracture in verses 40 to 43. Dilemma, characters, fracture. Those are the scenes. Let's look more closely at each one now. First of all, we find a kingdom dilemma in verses 9 to 15. A kingdom dilemma. You don't have to read very far before you encounter division within Israel. Notice verse 9, how it opens with the problem straight away. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel. So it's a national controversy. And there doesn't appear to be much unity among the people. But what makes this so serious is the subject of their bickering. 
It's the question of who will lead the kingdom. Verses 9 and 10 present the dilemma in clear terms. On the one hand, you have David, who has delivered the people many times before, but who has also fled the land from Absalom. He's not currently reigning on the throne. So on the one hand, you have David, but on the other hand, you have Absalom, whose claim on the throne ended with his death. So where does that leave the kingdom? Well, in short, it leaves them divided. Notice the last line of verse 10, where we hear a snippet of this national argument. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? You see, factions are developing. People are picking sides, with one side calling for David and the other side apparently hesitant to do so. If you put it all together, there's a dilemma in the kingdom. Who is going to fill the power vacuum created by Absalom's rebellion? Well, in verse 11, you find the answer, and it's not a surprise. King David rises to resolve this dilemma. And his plan focuses on the tribe of Judah. You see it there in verse 11. He sends word to the elders of Judah. You'll remember that David himself is from the tribe of Judah. So it would be natural for him to begin with his own flesh and blood. In fact, David himself stresses this very connection in verse 12. Look at verse 12. You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? So you can hear David's strategy. Appeal to your base. Start with your base and then expand out from there and build some sense of unity. But David doesn't stop with that appeal. In verse 13, he doubles down, so to speak, on this Judah first strategy by replacing Joab with Amasa. Now, Amasa, you may remember, was Absalom's commander. Amasa was the man who led the rebel army. So this is a rather shocking decision. Imagine if President Lincoln had replaced Grant with Lee after Appomattox. It would have stunned the nation. And this surely stunned the nation of Israel in David's day. The victorious general is, re- is replaced by the defeated general. And that raises the necessary question, what exactly is David doing? What is he doing here? Well, there are two ways that you can read David's strategy. One way is to see David as the master politician who pulls all the right levers and swings all the right deals. The other way is to see David as the clear-eyed leader who addresses in the only way possible the most pressing roadblock standing in the way of the throne. So one way, it's just politics. The other way, it's good leadership. Which reading of David's decision is correct? Well, it's a mixture of both, isn't it? I mean, certainly, there is some element of politics at work in David's decision. That seems clear enough. But we shouldn't overlook the leadership on display at this point. Let me explain what I mean. Judah is the main roadblock to David returning to the throne. The tribe of Judah is the main roadblock standing in David's way. Think about it. Where did Absalom's rebellion begin? In Hebron, the leading city of Judah. Who led Absalom's rebellion? Ahithophel, who was from the tribe of Judah. Who commanded Absalom's army? Amasa, who was from the tribe of Judah. You see, Absalom's rebellion from start to finish had a distinctly Judean theme. It's the tribe of Judah that rebelled against their king. 
So if David is going to return, he at least has to have some assurance that the tribe of Judah is with him. He also has to have a way to communicate to the tribe of Judah, I'm not going to punish you for what you've done. I'm going to be merciful. You see, Judah is the biggest roadblock, so David does what he has to do. It may have some political notes, but it also rings out with good leadership as well. And verse 14 confirms David's strategy. Notice again what the text says in verse 14. And listen for the small but significant contrast between David and Absalom. Verse 14. And David swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return both you and all your servants. So did you catch the contrast? How did Absalom foster his rebellion? Chapter 15, he stole the hearts of the men of Israel with lies and with deceit. How has David initiated his return? Verse 14, he has swayed the hearts of the people. He's persuaded them with a good display of leadership. And so, verse 15, Judah prepares to meet the king after he crosses the Jordan. But don't read over verse 15 too quickly. Notice where Judah meets her king. At the city of Gilgal. If you remember Israel's history, then you'll remember that Gilgal was Israel's base camp during the conquest of the Promised Land. It was at Gilgal that the nation set up the twelve stones to commemorate God bringing them into the Promised Land. And it was at Gilgal that the nation renewed their covenant with God through a national ceremony of circumcision and celebrating the Passover. At Gilgal, they set up the monument to worship and declare God's glory. And at Gilgal, they renewed their commitment to God. Gilgal, you see, was something of a spiritual focal point for the nation. It reminded the people of God's work on their behalf. And just as importantly, it called the people to renew their own commitment to God and to God's chosen leaders. That's what Gilgal represented. So by meeting Judah at the city of Gilgal, David is signaling a new beginning for the kingdom. It's like a reconquest of the land. It's a new beginning for the nation. But, but, it's a new beginning that highlights their need for the Lord. It's a new beginning that puts God's work for their, on their behalf on display. This, I think this is the takeaway from this section of verses. The kingdom is being rebuilt, praise God. And David is showing good leadership, again, praise God. But at all times, the great hope of God's people is not their leaders and not their strategy, but their God. That's why David takes them to Gilgal. Because they need more than the king coming back. They need more than just a renewed sense of unity. They need God to work among them. The church in our day would do well to remember this, wouldn't we? Pastors would do well to remember this. We absolutely need to exhibit good leadership and we certainly need wise strategies. And yet, if you listen to a lot of the talk about leadership and strategies, it's surprisingly devoid of God. We should recognize that good leaders can never replace dependence on God. And wise strategy is no substitute for humility before the Lord. Look, at the end of the day, 
what God's people need the most is for God's hand to work among them today like He did in the past. That's why, I take it, David meets them at Gilgal because he's saying to them, let's rebuild this, but we're going to need God to do it, not us. If we're going to resolve this dilemma, then we need God's help most of all. We need the Lord's hand to do great things among us once again. That, it seems to me, is David's strategy for this dilemma within the kingdom. And I think the church in our day would do well to take David's example to heart also. We need the Lord to work among us. That's how David solves this kingdom dilemma. But then that theme of division gets put on pause. And we come to the second scene that deserves our attention. It starts in verse 16 where we find this series of kingdom characters. That's what we'll call it. Kingdom characters. As we noted at the outset, three individuals approach David as he returns home. Shimei, Mephibosheth, and Barzillai. We know that these men are the emphasis because their name comes at the beginning of each of the verses that start their section. Sometimes that emphasis makes the point relatively clear. Shimei, Mephibosheth, Barzillai. We've met these men before in David's story, but they return now to give us a glimpse of the kind of work David will have to do. He'll have to deal with the whole spectrum of people. From enemies to allies. And it's not always clear who is who. Enemy or an ally. So, let's zero in on each character and examine his interaction with the king. How does each man approach David? How does each man approach the king? And as we zero in on each of these characters, we might be surprised to find that these three men will have something helpful to say to us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, it starts with Shimei. Shimei displays submission without love. Shimei approaches David in submission, but without love. I'm sure you remember Shimei. He's honestly hard to forget. Shimei is the man who cursed David and told him that he was cut off from God. And he's also the man that followed David the 21 miles from Jerusalem down to the Jordan River, throwing rocks at him for all 21 miles. I've had some grudges in my life, but I don't know that I'd go 21 miles throwing rocks at people. That's what Shimei does. Well, now that David is coming back, Shimei recognizes that he has a problem. So in verse 16, he races to meet David at the Jordan River. But importantly, Shimei is not alone. Notice in verse 17 that he brings a thousand men of Benjamin with him. That's significant, and we'll see why in just a moment. Upon meeting the king, Shimei wastes no time displaying his submission. Verse 18, he falls on his face and he begs for David's pardon. In fact, listen to his plea, verse 19 and on into verse 20. Let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on that day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart for your servant knows that I have sinned. Well, that sounds like a good confession, doesn't it? I mean, Shimei acknowledges that he sinned. He admits that he was wrong. It it seems that he has truly humbled himself before the king. But not so fast, my friends. There's more to Shimei, and it's not love for David. Notice the rest of verse 20. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, 
the first of all the house of Joseph to come down to meet my Lord, the King. Now we see why Shimei has brought a thousand men with him from the tribe of Judah. He's trying to show David, I can be a problem solver. Shimei's trying to show David how valuable he can be. So far, remember, David only has the tribe of Judah on his side. But what about the other tribes? I can help you with that, Shimei says. I can solve that problem. Look at all the men that I have with me. Look at all these soldiers that I have brought. You see, Shimei is interested only in protecting and advancing himself. Power has switched from one side to the other, so Shimei does what all chameleons do. He switches from one side to the other. He's driven by self-interest, self-preservation, and not by love. So what will David do to him? Well, he doesn't take vengeance. Notice verse 22. David rejects Abishai's suggestion to execute Shimei. Abishai suggested they do the same thing the first time we met Shimei, so you can tell Abishai has got a quick trigger finger. He just wants to kill this guy. But in David's mind, today is a day for mercy, not punishment. So that's what David gives him. Verse 23, he extends mercy by not putting him to death. Now, you've got to caveat this just a little bit, because in 1 Kings chapter 2, when David is dying, he gives his son Solomon a series of instructions, and in those instructions he says, you make sure you kill Shimei. You, you put him to death. Don't let his gray head go down to Sheol without blood. Right? So, this isn't like full forgiveness. This is a partial reprieve that I'm not going to kill you today. For now, David extends some level of mercy to the man who, who cursed him. For our purpose though, it's, it's Shimmy that we need to pay attention to. It's Shimmy's approach to David that is instructive to us. And essentially, his life is a warning. Shimmy's approach to David is a warning. And the warning is this. Submitting to the Lord merely out of self-interest is not true submission. Many people, I'm afraid, profess Christ or attend church simply because they believe it will benefit them in the end. But in their hearts, they have no true affection for Jesus. They have no true love for His Gospel. They have no lasting allegiance to His church. They simply see an opportunity to avoid something unpleasant or to get ahead in life. Friends, that kind of approach to the Lord's anointed is not an example of faith. It's not what the Bible describes as saving faith or humble submission to God. Like Shimmy, it's merely self-interest masquerading as submission. And therefore, we would be foolish if we didn't take some time here to examine our lives and ask ourselves, what is at the core of my allegiance to Christ? Is it true faith rooted in love for Jesus? Or is it just self-interest because I can see the handwriting on the wall, I can do the mental calculus, and I'm going to make the play that this choice is going to work out better than that choice? Friends, that's not faith. That's not faith. That's not the faith that saves. That's like shimmy. It's self-interest, but without love. And we would do well to listen to His warning. Let's keep going. Next, David meets Mephibosheth. Unlike Shimei, 
Mephibosheth displays loyalty without fear. It's loyalty without fear from Mephibosheth. We've been waiting to hear about Mephibosheth for a few chapters now. If you remember back in chapter 16, a man named Ziba claimed that Mephibosheth had turned on David, which was a pretty shocking claim to make considering how kind King David had been to Jonathan's crippled son, Mephibosheth. So for at least the last few chapters, we've been asking ourselves, we've been left to wonder, is Mephibosheth really a traitor? Did Jonathan's son really stab King David in the back? And right away in verse 24, we get the first hint that no, Mephibosheth is not a traitor and Ziba has lied. Look at verse 24. It describes Mephibosheth's appearance and it's not pretty. Mephibosheth had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king had departed until the day he came back in safety. So literally, Mephibosheth hasn't trimmed his mustache or cut his toenails. That's what it says, literally. So you can imagine how rough he looked, and he probably smelled worse. Now, why is that significant? Well, because it indicates from the day that David left, Mephibosheth has been in mourning for the king. You couldn't just make this up overnight, in other words. You couldn't produce this level of ragged appearance in the span of 12 hours. Mephibosheth has been mourning since the day that David has left. He didn't physically go with David, but his ragged appearance was a symbol of solidarity with the king. If David is without earthly comforts, then I'm going to be without earthly comforts, Mephibosheth says. You see, Mephibosheth is loyal, friends. He's loyal. His heart is with the king. But what about Ziba's story, you ask? Well, that's David's question too. Notice verse 25. He asked Mephibosheth straight away, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And Mephibosheth's explanation is reasonable. Verse 26, Ziba deceived him. And then verse 27, Ziba slandered him. That's Mephibosheth's Answer, he was deceived and he was slandered by his servant. And that explanation is reasonable enough. Remember, he is lame. He couldn't just get up and run out of town with David. So it's a reasonable explanation. But ultimately, Mephibosheth's hope is not his reasonable explanation. This is the key, friends. Ultimately, Mephibosheth entrusts himself to the king's judgment. Notice the end of verse 27. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems Good to you. Now that's pretty incredible. Remember, Mephibosheth is helpless, and this this situation does not look good for him. And yet he's not afraid. He's not afraid. Why? Because Mephibosheth knows something of David's kindness, and he's willing to entrust his life into the king's hands. He doesn't need a long, drawn out argument. He knows this man, and he puts his life in this man's hands. Now, you can tell what I think here. I I already think Mephibosheth has proven his loyalty by this point. You may disagree with me, and that's okay. I uh, have read a whole stack of commentaries on 2 Samuel, and people are divided over who's telling the truth, Mephibosheth or Ziba. I can't imagine that you would think Ziba is telling the truth, but you can think that. That's fine. I think Mephibosheth has already proven his loyalty. But if you had any doubt, verses 29 and 30 give a final piece of evidence. Notice what happens. Verse 29. David decides to split the land between Ziba and Mephibosheth, which is just not cool. It bothers me. 
And you would expect Mephibosheth to object to this, right? I would object to this. Why do I have to give half of my stuff to this liar, Ziba? But that's not what Mephibosheth says. Notice verse 30. I love verse 30. Mephibosheth says, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safely. You see, Mephibosheth doesn't care about the land. The land is nothing compared to the king who shows him kindness. You see, this is Mephibosheth's portion. His life is found with the Lord's anointed. And Mephibosheth will gladly lose all that he owns if he still has the king. Take everything I have. I don't care. You're home. And I'm happy. That's what he says. What a contrast then between Mephibosheth on the one hand and Shimei on the other. Do you see it? Shimei came to David out of self-interest, looking to gain something for himself. Mephibosheth comes to David because quite literally, where else can he go? Where else is he going to go? The king is the one who has sustained his life. Where else will a lame, helpless man like Mephibosheth go? You see, Mephibosheth illustrates a truth that the Lord Jesus would teach some centuries later. Following the king will come at a cost, but that cost is nothing when compared to the king himself. Mephibosheth is a shadow, an an illustration, a picture, an anticipation of what Jesus would say centuries later. Following the king will come at a cost, but that cost is nothing when compared with the king himself. Take everything I have, I get the king. Take all my land, take my life. I get the king, and I'm happy. How thankful we should be for Mephibosheth's testimony. He shows us this loyalty without fear, or we could say this loyalty with love, with steadfast love. And in doing so, he urges us to bear that same cost, for following King Jesus is certainly worth it. So we've seen Shimei, we've seen Mephibosheth. David meets one more character on the road to Jerusalem. This time it's Barzillai who shows faithfulness without complaint. Barzillai shows us faithfulness without complaint. You may remember Barzillai from chapter 17. He's the wealthy elderly man who gave David food and supplies as the king was on the run from Absalom. You remember that? Chapter 17, he gave him beds and basins and food and all of those things. Well, here in chapter 19, David wants to repay Barzillai's faithfulness. Notice verse 33. David says, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. Now that's quite the offer. In David's kingdom, there's no greater reward than this. Barzillai is invited into the king's court. He's given a place at the king's table. He is welcomed into the king's presence. There's no greater reward. And yet Barzillai declines. Verse 34, he doesn't have very long to live. And verse 35, his age would prevent him from being able to enjoy the richness of the king's presence. Apparently, he can't hear very well and his taste buds are going. Don't waste it on me, he says. So instead, Barzillai asks that his servant be given the privilege of going with David. And the king, in verse 38, agrees. Now, there's something compelling about Barzillai that we might easily overlook. Notice verse 37. Barzillai says, 
Please let your servant return. Please let me go home, basically, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. You see, Barzillai doesn't need a parade to celebrate his service. He doesn't require a banquet honoring his accomplishments. No newspaper headlines, no royal decrees, no posters celebrating him. No, for Barzillai, faithfulness is enough. Faithfulness is enough. He has used his gifts well to serve the king, and that is enough for him. Barzillai is content. He is satisfied having served the Lord's anointed. And I like to picture him returning home quite happy simply for the privilege of having been faithful. Friends, when we devote our lives to God's King, the service itself is satisfying. That's what Barzillai is telling you. When you devote your life to God's King, the service itself is satisfying. When we use our gifts and our position to serve the Lord's anointed, one of the great rewards is being able to lay your head down at night and know, I've been faithful. I've done what the Lord wanted me to do. This is a good reminder for me. I hope it's a good reminder for you. Faithfulness is hard, isn't it? I mean, if you think about it, being exceptional is kind of easier because you only have to do it once. Right? Like just do something exceptional once and everybody remembers you forever. But the faithful guy just has to do it every day, week in, week out, month in, month out, till he dies. Faithfulness is hard. Whether it's in your home or your workplace or your ministry as a Christian, faithfulness is hard. What's more, in our social media age, it's easy to believe that publicity is actually the means to happiness. And it's even easier to believe that everybody else has more happiness than you. But then we remember old Barzillai, whose heart was satisfied with the simplicity of faithfulness. And old Barzillai would say this to us, serve where the Lord has planted you. That's what Barzillai would say. Serve where the Lord has planted you. Be faithful with the gifts you've received and don't worry about the gifts you haven't. You may serve for 80 years and nobody notice, and that's okay. Keep your head down and do what the Lord has given you to do. He's 80 years old before anybody takes notice. And he's happy. He's content. That's the Barzillai way. It's the way of faithfulness. It's not easy, and it doesn't often get noticed, but it does give a sense of satisfaction, a sense of contentment, knowing that you've played your part in service to the King. Knowing that you have done your work as God has given you to do it. Keep your head down. Do what the Lord's given you to do. Well, what, what a cast of characters David meets on the road to Jerusalem. Shimei, submission without love, his life is a warning. Mephibosheth, loyalty without fear, his life is an encouragement. And Barzillai, his faithfulness without complaint, his life is an exhortation. Each man in his own way teaches us a little bit more what it means to follow God's King. And so we come to the final section, verse 40 to 43 where that theme of division comes back. It's a kingdom fracture here at the end. The final scene, a kingdom fracture. The theme of division, again, returns to verse 40. The tribe of Judah is united in bringing David across the Jordan. But before their boots can even dry, conflict erupts. Again, verse 41, Israel, which means the ten northern tribes at this point. In verse 41, when, it, when it's talking about Israel, it's the ten northern tribes. 
the northern tribes accused Judah of stealing their king. Now, that's not actually what happened, but the men of Israel are angry. They're just, they're just angry, and they accuse Judah of stealing the king. But the men of Judah honestly don't make it any easier. Look at verse 42. They throw their kinship back in the face of the northern tribes because the king is our close relative, they shout at them. So you can feel this conversation spiraling out of control. Tempers are flaring up. People are bringing up the past. They're throwing things in people's faces. And the northern tribes punch back. Verse 43, they don't make it any better either. The men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have ten shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. Now we're counting who's better and who has more significant contribution. Friends, you see how quickly old wounds are opening up? Do you see how easily God's people slip into assuming motives and hurling accusations? These are the people of God under the old covenant. These are the people of God. And look what they're doing. All it takes is a moment, one careless word, and things are getting raw and ugly. And in this particular showdown, the tribe of Judah wins. Notice the end of verse 43. It's such an abrupt ending to the chapter. It's just over. The, men, the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel, period, chapter end. It's done. It's just over. The war may be over, but the division is still there. The northern tribes assume the worst about their brothers in the tribe of Judah. And the people in the tribe of Judah are berating and belittling their brothers in the north. Unity is such a fragile thing, isn't it? Unity is such a fragile thing. That's one of the takeaways from this passage, actually. There's a reason why nearly every church covenant that I've ever read, including ours, lists as its very first commitment the promise to work together for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Nearly every church covenant I've read has that as the first commitment, including ours. And the reason is because unity is fragile. These are the people of God under the Old Covenant. I'm not saying that Israel is exactly like the church. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm saying under the Old Covenant, these are the people of God. And they can't keep from tearing each other apart. Unity is a fragile thing, and words which often seem so small can be like bombs that shatter unity in an instant. So, let's work for it, brothers and sisters. Let's not be content with just knowing the history of Israel. Let's listen to their exhortation. Let's work for this thing that is so fragile, this unity. Let's thank God for the unity we have and let's resolve right now, each of us individually, to faithfully do our part to preserve and deepen the unity that we share. Don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. But in terms of 2 Samuel, why does the passage end with this note of division? Why does it end like it does in verse 43? Well, one reason is that the author is preparing us for what will happen in 1 Kings chapter 12 when the kingdom of Israel splits into two, north and south. Our passage is the seed that will bear that bitter fruit decades later in Israel's history. So if 1 Kings 12 is the earthquake that rips the nation apart, this is the tremor. This is the, fra- this is the first fracture in that earthquake right here in 2 Samuel 19. But on another level, the fracture here in 2 Samuel 19 is a reminder that David's kingdom for all of its greatness is not the kingdom of God. 
David's kingdom is not the kingdom of God, and David himself is not the Messiah. I know I've said that week after week, and I've got five more sermons to say it again. David's kingdom is not the kingdom of God, and David himself is not the Messiah. Aren't you thankful, brothers and sisters, that Christ's kingdom is not of this world? It's not of this world. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that God hasn't left His people to themselves. Because if Israel's history is any indication, we surely would have made a mess of it. So, let's appreciate what God did in the life of David and in David's kingdom in Israel. Let's appreciate it. Let's understand it. Let's put it in its context. Let's study it. But even more so, let's be thankful, even as we read here in 2 Samuel 19, let's be thankful that there's a new covenant inaugurated by a better king who comes in and does work in our hearts that helps heal some of this divisiveness. And let's rejoice this morning that in Christ's kingdom, God has reconciled us to Himself. And one of the great fruits of the Gospel is that we have peace with God and therefore peace with one another in Jesus Christ. Let's be thankful for that. Amen? Let's pray.